You are listening to Inside Biotech, an exciting new podcast from Biotech Connection Los Angeles, which focuses on the science behind SoCal's most innovative new biotech companies. For those listening who don't know, BCLA is an organization dedicated to inspire, educate, and connect emerging scientists and entrepreneurs to grow and diversify biotech in LA. My name is Dr. Yuande Pierce, and I am a media and marketing associate with BCLA, and I will be your host. I am so thrilled to welcome you back to our second episode of this podcast. If you want to stay informed about current progress and developments in biotech, then you've certainly come to the right place, and I hope that you'll keep coming back. Each month, I'll be talking with different scientists, entrepreneurs, and investors about the cutting-edge science that goes on inside their companies, touching on a range of themes from across Southern California's biotech industry. We're continuing our series theme, Alternative Careers in Biotech, where we explore the science behind companies that stand out from the biotech landscape for breaking the status quo. In a world where there is more information available than ever previously fathomable, Getting the best, most accurate, most digestible, and most relevant scientific news can be quite challenging. Not only is misinformation rampant, but scientific news can be full of jargon and statistics and a lot of information that is inaccessible or incomprehensible to the general public, making it something that people would rather scroll past than click on and try to understand. But science is important. As the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed, Getting accurate scientific news is crucial to making informed decisions. So how do we enable and create more accessible, exciting, and engaging science media online? These questions are where Massive Science, a scientific content media company, comes in. Powered by a Massive Science consortium, which is a group of scientific experts from over 50 countries in over 150 fields and at over 700 institutions, Massive Science aims to create a space where experts can share cutting-edge scientific news and research via their accessible online platform. To do so, Massive Science trains scientists on how to become powerful scientific storytellers. Instead of treating science as a dense block of uncarvable marble, Massive Science teaches the members of the consortium how to carve their discoveries and ideas into engaging stories by empowering them to work with a professional team of editors and other researchers. Furthermore, they allow them to build their audience by publishing these trustworthy, authoritative and entertaining science stories on Mass's website and through their partners. On this month's episode of Inside Biotech, I had the pleasure of speaking with founders of Mass Science, Naja Altelt and Alan Lasser. That interview, up next. Science is a content and media company delivering bleeding-edge scientific research and expertise. Their cutting-edge science news, opinion, translated research and long-form content is unrivaled in digital news media. 
Massive provides trustworthy, entertaining, and shareable science content authored by a growing community of over 2,000 knowledgeable scientists. Massive are powered by a consortium of subject matter experts who flock to them for their editorial and media expertise. The Massive Scientists Consortium represents over 50 countries, over 150 fields, and over 700 institutions. And it's still growing. In the US alone, there are over 775,000 postgraduate STEM researchers. Their online publication is the home for their scientist stories about climate change, genetics, and more with new stories published throughout the week. As a long-standing member of the Massive Consortium myself and an enthusiastic consumer of Massive content, I couldn't be more excited to introduce my very special guests, Alan Nasser and Nadia Ortelt, co-founders of Massive Science. How are you both doing? Great. Thank you for yeah. having us. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. And we're very excited to have you. So I've been wanting to speak to you both since we decided to launch this project. And so I'm excited to jump into the question. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. And I'm going to start off, Nadia, with a question about your TEDMED 2017 talk entitled, What If Scientists and the Public Could Understand Each Other? Which to me, when I when I watched it, really reminded me of journal clubs. So that's a regular gathering of scientists to discuss a scientific paper found in a research journal. And so I'm wondering, what was one of the big inspirations behind Massive Science? And could you talk a little bit about what led you both to this project and the other inspirations you had? Nadia, do you want to kick us off? Sure. That TED Talk was a great distillation of, I think, some of the kind of founding principles of Massive Science that Alan and I have been kind of working through and changing and amending and iterating since we started. I think the idea of translation um, between different kind of languages, you could say, in science communication or in science and the humanities or between non-experts and experts. Translation is kind of like the root of massive. And I think journal clubs, for me at least, as sort of young scientists, not really knowing anything, much less how to read a, a scientific paper, journal clubs were kind of that translation space for me. And I think I took that into the founding of massive, trying to say, okay, I was able to experience this kind of safe place in a laboratory where scientists would sit down together and openly talk about the things they didn't understand or didn't know, argue about things, kind of butt heads sometimes, but ultimately come out of the experience of a journal club understanding a kind of unit of scientific currency of the published paper a little bit better. And so I think that kind of modular attempt at translation is something that we really tried to take to massive science, trying to get single scientists to translate single articles that were in a field of their expertise and turn it into a story so that it could be accessible to people who didn't have expertise in that space. I feel like that's kind of the root of Massive or like the seed of Massive. Alan, do you do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Something I've tried to keep in mind from the beginning is finding ways to humanize scientists and, and really reveal the work that they do as really creative, really interesting problem solving. There's a lot of formality around that process. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's still a bunch of people who are really passionate about really interesting subjects. And bringing that to the forefront has always been at the heart of what we're trying to do. And I think that the fact that this was born of that sort of experience of a journal club is really, you know, talking about translation, really interesting because I think that a lot of people 
assume that scientists like know everything about the science that they're doing. And if you sit in a journal club, it's amazing how how little we know. And it's a really safe place, as you named Nadia, that you can be in a journal club as a scientist and, you know, pick apart a paper and have no clue. And then as you were saying, Alan, then make that accessible and humanize scientists and it all marries together really nicely and I think that the end result is science storytelling in a way that I hadn't seen before and so that's why I was so excited about um, learning about this project. Scientists write stories with their research all the time as you touched on Alan but outside of writing up papers which is a really arduous process they're often unaware of the broader storytelling potential of their work. I know that personally when I'm writing a paper it becomes so narrow that I forget often sort of how it fits into a a broader story. Massive office scientist training while providing a science curious audience with reliable and engaging science. Can you explain the process of training someone in science storytelling? Would you say that any scientist could write a science story? And what does a good scientific story that grips the general public look like? Alan, do you want to start us off? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is within the reach of any scientist. And I really hope that more people embrace the responsibility of talking about their work with everybody. It really comes from, we have this short little training course that scientists take when they sign up. And the first lesson is learn who you're speaking to. Make sure you keep your audience in mind the whole time, because that really drives the whole narrative. Another really important piece we try and teach people early on is that characters are really important for making a story Mm -hmm. relatable and easy to follow and, and interesting. And that character can be It can be anything from the thing that is being researched, whether it's an animal or a protein. A lot of times it can be the people who are doing the research and the the challenges that they're encountering and the ways that they overcome them. And then something that's really reliable is using yourself as a character and talking about your own experience and journey. So we usually have people work on contributing two articles, one that's a translation of research Mm -hmm. that's already been done, and the second one that's more of an opinion piece. Having gone through that process myself, it's amazing how when you start reframing the research that like with the translation piece that you're doing, it really does become a story. And I like what you're saying about having a character and the audience in mind. And Najee, do you have anything to add about the the process of training? I mean, you also have a science background. Is this something that you had been aware of before embarking on this process? Yeah, I think one of the biggest pieces that is really interesting to me about our translation process is that we we really emphasize this piece of the story that I think is hard for a lot of scientists to kind of wrap their heads around because it's kind of inbuilt into the reason why they became scientists and why they're studying the thing that they're studying. Mm. And it's the why piece, like why is this important to an audience? that you're speaking to? Why is this important to policymakers, the public? Why should people care? I think a lot of scientists like inherently know that about why, you know, about the work that they do, Mm -hmm. but they haven't yet, they haven't actually ever put it pen to paper and talked about the context of their work. And I think what's been interesting about watching this process happen with scientists in the consortium, and I mean, you experienced it as well, Yolande, but when there is a lot of friction in the learning process, and I think a lot of scientists are kind of really actively trying to change the way that they are thinking about science when they're writing with us, there can be a lot of friction in the beginning. They're really trying to wrap their heads around it, like this writing down this why and understanding how to contextualize their sometimes really high resolution work Mm -hmm. is hard. And it's really hard. But the fact that it's hard and that they work through it is actually why our process works. 
And I think that there has to be a kind of friction before learning happens where you are kind of, you're not great at it at first, get a lot of feedback. You have to really change the way that you write and the way that you think. And then out the other side comes actually a story that is compelling to somebody who is not a scientist. So that that whole part of it has been really interesting to me. It's super interesting. I can definitely say that it, it's really hard to begin with. It just something doesn't quite connect because it's, it, I mean, that sort of high view thing that you're trying to capture in a story is something that you take for granted in your work and you don't focus on. And what I found is once you go through the process, it does change and then you just think a little bit differently. And then for me, it's actually influenced how I then do the science and also how I write papers. And so I think it's this mutually very beneficial enhancement of storytelling, not just for a wider audience, but also in the way that we write papers and how we focus our intentions when we're putting together experiments. It's been a really amazing process. And one thing I'll add to that is just how important practice is and how important keeping a consistent practice is. I think anybody who's tried to do like a workout before realizes that it's not just doing it once and saying that you've mastered it. It's building those skills slowly over time to the point where after six months or or a year of consistency, you're really, really good at it. Definitely. And I think that the editors that you have at Massive are incredible. (laughs) Yeah, working with the editors, they um, do a really good job at helping you through that process. So I want to switch gears now to um, talking about something else. The scientific journal Nature recently published a four-year timeline of Trump's impact on science since 2016. Interestingly, Massive was founded in 2016. So I wonder how you think science storytelling thrived or suffered along this timeline. Alan, do you want to start? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right about the timing. We launched Massive maybe a month before the presidential election. And a really important event that aligned with that was the March for Science in mm-hmm. January. And what we saw from that was a whole group of people who really wanted to be stronger advocates for the importance of their work and their place in culture and in society. And that was a big inspiration and a big motivation for us at the beginning where we knew like, okay, like we want to change the face of science storytelling. These are people who feel like their stories aren't being told. Let's focus on them and what and what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I remember the the March for Science, that those two things happening at the same time, I think definitely was a motivator and had an influence on what came afterwards. Nadi, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, that was a really interesting moment because I think, I mean, very few people were expecting that to happen. And mm-hmm. a lot of people were in shock. I think there's a, there's a whole number of reasons why people didn't expect that. I think one of them, though, in particular for the scientific community was that they, I think, increased increasingly been a part of a bubble, a kind mm-hmm. of science communication bubble that was very reassuring because they were kind of speaking to a known audience. And that's a problem within media and journalism on digital platforms writ large that we're just kind of we've seen basically accelerate over the past four years. So that that problem hasn't really gone away. But I think people really it was a slap in the face for a lot of scientists who felt they had they had a voice, they had some kind of important role in society. And suddenly it became clear that that wasn't what people cared about at all. And Mm. I still think that's the thing that people that scientists in the scientific community really has to grapple with because, you know, we're looking at a moment right now where 50% of the country is not really sure that they want to take this vaccine. And I think that's a really, 
yeah, it's terrible. Um, and it reflects on our on our really terrible history of medical misconduct, especially with communities of color in the U.S., with indigenous communities and black communities. But it also speaks to just like a general distrust of scientific expertise, which is something that, you know, I think a lot of scientists four years ago when we started Massive we're only really starting to see and understand for the first time through, you know, the the election of Trump. And so I think, you know, it's hard to say whether or not there's so many factors at play, I think, especially in terms of how media and, you know, science media is distributed to the wider world through mm-hmm. digital platforms. It's hard to say, you know, what role the actual content creators can have in changing that other than on a kind of personal level, you know, in their sphere, in their like personal sphere of influence, because the impact of those distribution channels and the algorithms that drive them and that drive content to lots of different types of people, I think it still remains to be seen what the impact of that is. And I think we're kind of like living through that moment right now. I think I'd imagine I think in like five, five or 10 years, it'll be clearer what has happened. But it's a little bit hard right now, because we're kind of right in the middle of it. I don't know if you feel that way, too. I certainly feel that way. I think that this is an incredibly interesting moment for science and actually quite scary. And I find the fact that this is a very um, unique year in that science is kind of almost the hero, but also the villain at the same time. Like it's just such a contradiction. Like the vaccine, for example, is a way out of the situation that we're in, but people are so mistrusting of it. And if you go beyond a point of sort of trust in science where it kind of almost doesn't matter what the scientists are telling you, you have a different metric to, to judge, <laughs> you know, what you, you find to be truth. It's, it's kind of... A, a scary moment. I mean, science has been very much at the forefront this year in large part thanks to COVID-19. And some people, like I say, they cling to the science while others reject it. So I wonder about how Massive has been dealing with the immense pressure to stay true to its mission of delivering science when there is so much noise. How do you think Massive has contributed to the narrative around COVID-19 specifically? It's so hard because you in an ideal world, you have the science speak for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, we're not in a vacuum. And we're not very obviously in an ideal world. So the having the science be done is really just the first step. And I feel like what we've done is really work to try and increase the reach of the knowledge that's being created right now. And also, we, we've talked about humanizing science a lot, but like really deinstitutionalize it. I think there's a certain I think a lot of the skepticism against science comes from it being this elite field where uh, you need a lot of training, you need a lot of resources to get to the point where you can start doing it uh, professionally. And what we're trying to do is show, hey, like these aren't scientists are not an enemy. They're not this faceless force. They're just people trying to do a job and figure out answers like any of us. They just have a different toolkit for doing that. And through centuries of trial and error, it's turned out to be a pretty reliable one. So here's why we can trust the process. Here's where we don't have clear answers. And that's okay, too. And getting people uncomfortable with the uncertainty that exists was one of our kind of core values at the beginning. And I think that now more than ever has really been so important. This year is... I'm about to make some like gross generalizations, but I think probably a lot of people would (laughs) agree with me. So I apologize in advance. But I think what we saw happen at the beginning of the year when the pandemic began and was starting to hit the U.S. 
was a couple like classic kind of errors that that we see in science communication, but then we saw it happen on a grand scale that had real repercussions. And a couple of those we all experienced here in the US, one of which was we were told to not wear masks. You know, that was a very early, mm-hmm. an early mistake that everybody agrees was a mistake. It was an error, but it came out of a, where that came from could have been a place of political malfeasance, but it, it also could have come from a place of just not knowing anything, which is the thing that happens in science. It certainly happens in epidemiology. It was definitely happening at the beginning of the pandemic when we didn't really understand what was going on. And I think what we saw happen there was because of that early error and because of a lack of public communication and kind of admitting to that error and talking about that error on a, on a national scale, people began to distrust the institutions like the CEC that were supposed to be helping us understand what was happening. And I think one of the things that we've been trying to, you know, that we try to do in, at Massive and that we understand from a lot of science communication research is that admitting when you don't know something, admitting when you've said something incorrect or done something wrong is a huge part of building trust with audiences and with people. And it's also a huge part of the scientific process. Everything is always a theory. You're wrong most of the time. You're constantly testing it out. If you're wrong about something, it doesn't mean your colleague is going to shun you forever. It means you're going to argue about it. You're going to figure it out. And you're going to eventually come to some kind of conclusion. And so I think that that process, kind of actually experiencing that process as part of the pandemic and then experiencing all of these things that we've learned about science communication actually happening and seeing the impact of it was really I think a, a big part of how we were thinking about even just COVID coverage at Massive because talking about vaccines as an end-all be-all solution or talking about, you know, the process of understanding COVID in a way that felt very absolutist, I think has been a part of the problem in reporting about COVID and has contributed to people like mistrust or having a sense of mistrust around the scientific process or a feeling that they don't understand it. That's my feeling. And I, I completely agree with you on that. I think it's been very revealing. And as you say, this is quite a unusual moment because it's happening in real time and so when you're reporting or storytelling about something that the science isn't hasn't caught up yet and in the normal scientific process you you do experiments and then you write up a paper and then it goes to peer review and as you say it's you you know you argue over the data and then you come to a conclusion and then the paper is better in the end but when it's happening in real time you don't really have that opportunity so I think that it's been very revealing to understand what the process actually is which is just you know finding things out and then admitting when it's wrong and then readjusting and course correcting and I think the the tragedy or the irony is in us all going through this together and seeing science close up a lot of people not understanding that process then it ending in mistrust when actually it's just the process. This is how it works. So I hope we can get some of that back. I think Massive is really good at doing what it does in that regard. You have a really large readership, which I think is testament to that. So I wonder what you think are the best ways to make science more accessible and believable to people, especially in this age of misinformation. I would be really interested to hear a bit more about the Women of Science Tarot deck that you just released, for example. Can you speak a little bit on that? The Terra deck has been a really, really interesting experience, particularly because it's, for most of the time, we've been trying to figure out how to apply storytelling to science. And in the Terra deck, we kind of flipped that a little bit, where we're really applying science to this age-old storytelling format. That was the original structure and, and kind of framework, and we found a way to communicate some really 
deep and profound ideas and concepts about science that are really aimed at a, at a different audience than the one that we've been talking to currently. And at the same time, developing the whole minor arcana, the, the 56 cards that tell the biographies of different women in science throughout history. One thing we're really trying to do is, is get it to educators and use it as a tool to show just the range of opportunities that are available in science for all kinds of people. We're going to take a quick break. Here's a word from our sponsors. Hello, I'm Helen Mutanis, a development lead at BCLA, and I'm here with some messages from our sponsors. At the Bridge Institute at USC, convergent scientific efforts seek to develop new treatments, diagnostics, and devices to solve the greatest challenges of the 21st century, including cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and diabetes. One program, the Pancreatic Beta Cell Consortium, represents a priority commitment to the construction of a detailed virtual 3D model of the pancreatic beta cell and its components. Completion of this whole cell model is critical for development of next-generation treatments for diabetes. For more information, visit us on the web at bridge.usc.edu or email us at bridgeinstitute at usc.edu. The Maglify Incubator at UCLA's California Nanosystems Institute provides co-working laboratory resources for early-stage startup companies working on scientific innovations to address unmet needs. In addition to infrastructure and resources, Maglify also provides access to mentorship, partnerships, and UCLA's vibrant research community. To learn more and apply for space at Maglify, visit maglify.cnsi.ucla.edu today. Did you have anything to add? I know that the tarot deck is a really something, a really passionate project of yours. Yeah. So just recently, a couple of days ago, we had an MIT Press uh, live event online where I did a couple of readings, tarot readings for people, one for Alan and one for somebody in the audience who asked a question about, I think, when will the pandemic end? And it was really <laughs> great, <laughs> which I, I gave a caveat, which was like, this reading is not predictive. It's just a way to kind of tell a, a way for me to tell a story about when I think the pandemic will end. And I think that's part of what is really exciting about the tarot deck is that, you know, we were just talking just earlier about how there's this kind of disconnect between how people who understand science are telling stories about the world and how people who are not experts in science are telling stories about the world. Mm. And what the tarot deck does is it's a really cool tool for really reaching across the aisle in a way. I know that's like a very sort of hackneyed term at the moment, but Reaching across the aisle, the only thing that everybody can understand and the thing that speaks to everybody is a kind of emotional valence of storytelling. So where you're speaking to people's fears, to people's anxieties, to 
to talking about the kind of problems that science has kind of opened like a Pandora's box in the past into the future and the joys that it's brought to us and how do we kind of process those things all together. And so the tarot deck in some ways is almost like this therapeutic tool for telling stories about science in a way that feels to me very embodied. It's like a physical deck of cards. It's a game. You can do it with other people. You can do it alone. You can do it over Zoom. And it feels... I don't know. It feels like a a really different kind of way of manifesting the storytelling ethos that we've tried to bring to our massive work. And it was also such an amazing collaborative process. I mean, Yuande, you were involved very heavily in writing a lot of the biographies of the women of science who are on the cards in the deck, along with dozens of other people who kind of participated in creating all of the biographies and copy and writing um, in the book that comes with the deck. We had our amazing traditional tarot symbols and allegories into this science this science deck. So it was a really amazing process to make this for Alan to design it and to kind of go through the process of actually physically manufacturing them and then have this thing that I think to me really epitomizes our mission. I mean, it was such a, an honor to be part of it and seeing it all come together. Like my heart literally exploded because it's just, as you say, it's such an incredible tool. And I mean, talk about engagement. I feel like it's just so universally appealing and so unique. And I think it's really effective. And it actually brings me to my final question, which is about the fact that Massive has fantastic content spanning many scientific themes. And so I just wonder about how you decide which themes to focus on and what overlap you see with other disciplines. I think in this moment in particular, we are thinking a lot about intersections. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on whether, you know, science stories should incorporate, for example, political ones, and if science can remain or has ever been truly neutral. What do you think in terms of science storytelling? The political question is an interesting one. We've definitely covered some aspects of politics before, always coming from a science-first perspective, but it's it's hard to avoid, right? Because mm-hmm. science is a way of describing the world. And there's all this stuff that's happening in the world. And it's another lens for observing the consequences. Like something I think about is during the child separation earlier, I think last year, one of our contributors wrote about the the neurological impacts of separation on young children. And that just gives us a very precise and very clear way of talking about the, the real impacts and consequences of this in addition to all the other really heartbreaking ones. So when it comes to talking about, you know, what kind of science do we cover, we really try and cover the spectrum. One way that we're a little limited right now and, and really want to grow beyond is we're limited by the, ex- the the areas of expertise of our contributors. So we tell a lot of stories about biology, we tell a lot of stories about medicine and health, and, and those are stories that really resonate with our readers and the people really want to see. At the same time, you know, Space is fascinating. There's a lot of other more abstract subjects that we'd love to cover and figure out how to tell in a really compelling way. And yeah, I think that <laughs> that about covers it. <laughs> and Nadia, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. We at Massive have a pretty clear policy around transparency in reporting on when science is being used for 
kind of nefarious means. And I think that happens often. And I think a part of us trying to talk about when that happens, either historically or in a contemporary context, is part of this thing that I was talking about before, which is which is openness around when wrongdoing is happening or when we don't know something or when we've done something wrong. And I say we as the scientific community, it's really important to not hide that or pretend that it didn't happen. And I think in particular, when it comes to the the role in which our government plays and the way in which they utilize kind of scientific research to justify actions, whether those actions are actions as a state in an, kind of an imperialist way or against our own people within within the U.S. We see all sorts of things happening in the U.S. that happen in other places, but are just really extreme here. The carceral state being justified using kind of social sciences, algorithmic bias being utilized in the justice system. We see all sorts of things happening that really touch upon like how science is not, science is is a part of culture. It's a, it's a tool that can be used for good or bad, but it is also kind of inherently a part of us. And so we try to touch upon that as much as we can at Massive, but I think one of the things that I think about that's happening behind the scenes at Massive is that the work that we do with scientists to try to really push them to understand their audience, who they're speaking to, and to mm. understand why people think their work is important or not, is to really try to get them to think much larger about the work that they do in the world. You know, is if they cannot justify their work or contextualize it for a public that needs to understand it or deserves to understand it, why are they doing that work? Is there a different way in which they can bring themselves and their own moral framework to that work? And I think that is a kind of like interesting subtext to the work that we do, which is that we're actually changing the way that scientists think about their own work, which has really big political, I think, ramifications. Or could. I'm, I'm not saying that Massive has big political ramifications <laughs> in our work, but I think that you know, writ large, if more scientists thought more deeply and engineers thought more deeply about why they're doing the work that they're doing, I think that we would be living in a better world. Alan? Not is totally right. And I just want to also point out that there's a lighter side to this too, um, mm -hmm. of really celebrating the work that's happening and the really cool things that people are doing, like just within our editorial team, which is made up of scientists or, or former scientists. One of our editors is an ecologist and for the last couple of summers has gone down to Central America to do biodiversity research. So at the end of her field work, she comes back and shares all these amazing photos of like camping in the rainforest, which is incredible. Wow. And another one of our editors, she just finished her PhD in paleogeology. For the last couple of years, she's gone down to Mexico and gone into caves to do field work in order to understand like what the condition of like the ocean millions of years ago, which is all super fascinating and making helping scientists who are deep in this and just see it as a day-to-day -day ordinary thing as a really special adventurous field is also a lot of fun and something that a lot of our readers really respond to as well. Again, massive. I'm such a fan of the organization and I'm so grateful for you both taking the time to give us a little bit of the insight about the science that goes on and the processes that go on behind the scenes. And Nadia, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast. It's just for our audience, if they want to find out more, what's the website and the social media handle that they should look up? They can find us at MassiveSci.com or they can find us at MassiveSci, which is our handle on all platforms. And that's M-A-S-S-I-V-E-S-C-I. -S 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 Perfect. It was such a pleasure to have you. I'll let you go. Thank you again. 
right back after a word from our sponsors. Bioscience LA is the independent innovation catalyst for life sciences and health innovation in the greater LA area, accelerating the growth of funding, space, and talent, as well as messaging and awareness building. With support from LA County, Amgen, Pharma, Richard Lanquist, Richard Merkin, City of Hope, and Cedar Sinai, among others, we are working with a broad array of stakeholders to grow our ecosystem. Bioscience LA is a proud sponsor of BCLA. Follow us at BioscienceLA.org and at BioscienceLA to stay informed. Get involved and be hashtag LongLA. Thank you so much for tuning into the episode. To find out more about BCLA or Massive Science, check out the show notes. If you like the show, then please take a moment to subscribe and share. Our theme continues next month when I'll be talking to Anna Skyer, founder and CEO of Basepaws, a company that uses DNA testing to help cat owners learn about their cat's breed, health, traits, and habits. As a relatively new cat mum, I cannot wait. This podcast is a BCLA production. Thank you so much to our podcasting dream team, Kathy Grosh and Ananta Wadwa, my co-producers. Damon Palermo for sound design, Daniel Grace for the fantastic theme music, and of course, our sponsors, Bioscience LA, the USC Michelson Center Bridge Institute, and CNSI at UCLA. See you next time.